coming to you live from New York. I'm Zain Asher and for my colleague Julia Chatterley. Welcome to First Move. President Biden saying that Vladimir Putin badly miscalculated his ability to invade Ukraine. The U.S. president also says he does not believe that Russia would use uh, a nuclear weapon. A CNN exclusive interview in just a few moments. Plus, a new round of Russian missile attacks in Ukraine. At latest, at least seven people killed at a major market and a major southern city also struck by missiles. Our live report from Ukraine coming up. Meantime, on Wall Street, futures are, let's see here, flat after the U.S. produces price index, which tracks wholesale prices, rose about half of 1% in September. That's more than expected. This also comes a day after the Nasdaq entered its second bear market of the year. Stocks mostly fell yesterday after the Bank of England said it will end its emergency bond buying program this Friday as scheduled. Investors are also nervously looking ahead to tomorrow's key inflation data, the U.S. consumer spending index. Let's get now to our Top story, President Joe Biden sat down with CNN's Jake Tapper for an exclusive interview to discuss a wide range of topics, including Russia's war on Ukraine. President Biden giving a stark assessment of Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Do you think Putin is a rational actor? I think he is a rational actor who's miscalculated significantly. I think he thought he was going to be welcome with open arms that this, was, this has been the, the home of Mother Russia and Kiev, and, and they were, he was going to be welcomed, and I, I think he just totally miscalculated. Russia's military strategy has fallen short in recent months, and Ukraine has regained territory in its eastern region. As a result, Putin has waged one of Russia's harshest bombing campaigns this week, hitting multiple civilian targets throughout Ukraine, including in its capital of Kiev. At a fundraiser last week, Biden saying the world was the closest it has been to nuclear Armageddon since the Cuban Missile Crisis 60 years ago. The whole point I was making was it could lead to just a horrible outcome. And uh, not because anybody intends to turn it into a world war or anything, but it just once you use a nuclear weapon, the mistakes that can be made, the miscalculations, who knows what would happen. On Saudi Arabia, Biden claiming the United States' relationship with the kingdom will be re-evaluated after the Saudi-led OPEC plus oil cartel announced plans to slash oil production next month, a decision criticized as showing allegiance to Russia. When the uh, uh, this House and Senate gets back, there's, they're going to have to, uh, there's going to be some consequences for what they've done with Russia. Biden not providing specifics and continuing to defend his decision to visit Saudi Arabia this summer, where he met with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. I wanted about making sure that we made sure that we weren't going to walk away from the Middle East and what was going on. On the economy, Biden defending his administration's accomplishments. I don't think there will be a recession. If it is, it'll be a very slight recession. Look what we got done. We, we, we passed so much legislation that significantly makes a, makes a point about, you know, for example, the American Rescue Plan, the, the legislation to deal with inflation, um, the, the Inflation Act. We moved along. I mean, there's so much that's been accomplished that the idea that there's uh, something, there's an automaticity to recession is just not, is just not there. The president, who turns 80 next month, saying he will decide after the midterms whether to run for a second term. Name me a president in recent history who's gotten as much done as I have in the first two years. Not a joke. I believe I can do the job. I've been able to do the job. 
and making this pledge. We finally have action on guns. And by the way, I'm going to get an assault weapons ban. Before this is over, I'm going to get that again. Not a joke. And watch. The president also commenting on his son's possible legal troubles. CNN has reported that Hunter Biden could face charges for allegedly violating tax laws and lying on a gun application. By the way, this thing about a gun, I didn't know anything about it, but turns out that when he made my application to purchase a, a gun, what happened was he said, I guess you get asked, I don't guess, you get asked the question, are you on drugs, you use drugs? He said no. And he wrote about saying no in right. his book. So I, I, I've, I've great confidence in my son. I love him. And uh, he's on a straight and narrow, and he has been for a couple years now. And I'm just so proud of him. In Ukraine, Russian strikes continue. At least seven people killed at a market in an eastern Ukrainian town. Missiles also hit the city of Zaporizhia and its suburbs. Let's bring in Fred Bleiken, joining us live now from Kyiv with the very latest. So, Fred, just in terms of the interview with R. Jake Tapper and, of course, President Joe Biden, the headline coming mm. out of there is that the president says that, yes, look, Putin miscalculated here, but bottom line, he is a rational actor, despite the fact that there is clear fear that President Putin could resort to more extreme ways to win this war as it gets harder for him. Walk us through that, Fred. Hi there, Zane. Yeah, and of course, the extreme measures that many people fear uh, could be meant by that is uh, tactical uh, or the use of two, uh, tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield. And it's been quite interesting uh, because as you know, Jake had that interview uh, with uh, the president of the United States. I also had an interview with the national security advisor of Ukraine. And they also said that they believe that this is something um, that, that there's a danger of, of that happening. It's obviously something they don't believe is necessarily in the cards imminently. But they also do say that the further they push the Russian military back, the more the fear of that grows. And, you know, we were watching very closely to see earlier today when Vladimir Putin spoke at an energy conference in Moscow to see whether or not he would react directly to those uh, comments that the president of the United States made. Um, the Russian president didn't do that. He talked about the Nord Stream pipeline, uh, saying it was an international act of terrorism, that that pipeline was hit. He also talked uh, about the Kerch Bridge and uh, blamed the Ukrainians for uh, for the attacks that happened on those uh, on that bridge. But Oh, he used some very strong rhetoric towards uh, the Ukrainians. And certainly that is something that does uh, lead to a lot of concern here in Kiev and uh, among many people who are watching this conflict as well. And then you have the Kremlin for its part, Zane. And it did comment on that interview uh, that Jake Tapper did with the U.S. president, essentially accusing the U.S. and European countries of being the ones who are talking about the use uh, of nuclear assets or nuclear weapons. So essentially the Kremlin trying to turn all of that around, while at the same time you do sense that the Ukrainians... You know, they have it in the back of their minds that the threat is there. But at the same time, of course, they do remain defiant. And they also say they are going to continue to win on the battlefield, Zane. And just set the scene in terms of what's happening where you are now. More missile strikes in, in mm. places like Zaporizhia, for example. Just set the scene uh, for where you are. Yeah, you know what? It's it's uh, missile strikes in places like Zaporizhia. And if you look at the Zaporizhia missile strikes, according to the Ukrainian authorities, they say that S-300 missiles were used for those strikes. Those are normally used to shoot down planes at high altitudes. They're very inaccurate if you use them on a ground-to-ground -ground way. And so certainly if you use them in populated areas, the danger of civilian casualties is very high. Now, the Ukrainians say no one was injured in those specific strikes this time in Zaporizhia. But if we look at the past couple of days in Zaporizhia, many, many people 
people were killed and injured in strikes that happened there. In fact, within a span of only a few days, 43 people were killed, the Ukrainian authorities said. And then you have an Avdika in the east of the country where the Ukrainians say a market was hit and seven people were killed there. Here in the capital, we did have air raid siren alarms pretty much the entire time. It was on and off, but it pretty much happened throughout uh, the entire night. There were also some Ukrainian jets flying over the city, no impacts in the city itself. And you do sense that defiance also here in the Ukrainian capital. I was at one site that was struck early Monday morning where five people were killed and the Ukrainians had already um, patched up the holes in the concrete there. There was traffic rolling again. It only took them about a day to actually patch all of that to back up. So you have the defiance, but at the same time, the Ukrainian authorities say they understand that the recent blitz of missiles that they faced from the Russians and uh, kamikaze drones, they say as well, they don't believe that by any means that that is over yet, Zane. Right, Fred Pagan, my first there. Thank you so much. Right, meantime, here in the United States, soaring gasoline prices ahead of the midterm elections are not exactly what the White House wants to see. It says that President Biden will work with Congress to reevaluate relations with Saudi Arabia after the kingdom partnered with Russia to cut back oil production. Do you think it's time for the U.S. to rethink its relationship with Saudi Arabia? Yes. And by the way, let's get straight why I went. I didn't go to one about oil. I went about making sure that we made sure that we weren't going to walk away from the Middle East. We should, and I am, uh, in the process when the, when the uh, uh, this House and Senate gets back, they're going to have to, uh, there's going to be some consequences for what they've done. Rahel Solomon joins us live now. So Biden there saying that, look, there's going to be consequences for Saudi Arabia here. There will be a price for the Saudis to pay. Rahel, what, what could that look like? Well, Zane, this really left the White House and certainly Democrats stunned. This decision, of course, coming, as you know, just weeks before the U.S. midterm election. And so we're already starting to hear legislation being proposed, ways of which to get back at Saudi Arabia, in particular for this announcement from OPEC+. Plus. So one legislation, Zane, that was introduced yesterday on Tuesday uh, would limit all or stop all U.S. arms sales for a year. That would include things like military supplies, sales and other weapons aid. That proposal and legislation coming from Connecticut. Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal, who also said that there is a very strong appetite in Washington to hit back at Saudi Arabia. Now, I should say that uh, this announcement from OPEC Plus to reduce or lower production by about 2 million barrels per day, industry experts say that that will actually look a bit closer to 900,000 to a million barrels per day. Uh, OPEC Plus defending those production cuts, saying that this was not about the U.S., that they are preparing for the potential of a global recession and trying to stabilize oil prices. And just in terms of what President Biden has to do in order to shield Americans from higher oil prices. What are his options on that front? Well, it's an interesting point, right? Because that, these proposals don't get to that, right? Which is the gas problem here in the U.S. or gas prices here in the U.S. And the truth of the matter, Zane, is that the president has very limited options in terms of how to lower prices in the near term, whether they're on the way up or on the way down. Uh, One suggestion being floated is perhaps the president could uh, increase the uh, reserves from the strategic petroleum reserves, uh, increase more production coming from the strategic petroleum reserves. But Zane, those levels are 
already at 40-year lows because the president, of course, in the White House has already been pulling from that reserve anyway. The other idea being floated, the other potential, however, is perhaps easing sanctions on countries like uh, Iran and Venezuela. But that does not come without trade-offs. For example, uh, Bob McNally, the former energy advisor for George W. Bush, telling our colleague Christine uh, Romans recently that, look, you know, you could do a deal with Iran and get a lot more oil, but would that be good for national security? And then when responding to Venezuela said, would that be good for national security and human rights and so forth? So, Zane, the president doesn't have a lot of short-term options at his fingertips, and they certainly don't come without some trade-offs. All right, Rahel Fon on Life for us there. Thank you so much. Right, British Prime Minister Liz Truss says that she will not cut public spending to fund her proposed tax cuts. Ms. Truss faced questions in Parliament earlier today from the opposition for the first time since her mini-budget triggered economic turmoil. What we're making sure is that we protect our economy at this very difficult time internationally and as a result as a result of our action mr speaker and this has been independently corroborated we will see higher growth and lower inflation Meantime, the Bank of England says that its emergency support will end on Friday. The bank had been forced to step in to buy government bonds after the market turmoil left some pension funds on the brink of collapse. Joining us live now is Claire Sebastian from London. So Andrew Bailey here saying that, look, he'd stayed up all night trying to figure out a way to calm the markets. But in the end, he'd always been clear that the bond buying would be temporary. Obviously, a lot of people are not happy about that. Walk us through that, Claire. Yeah, then there were no good options for the Bank of England here. If they stayed in the gilt market beyond Friday, continuing to buy these government bonds to, to, to sort of uh, try to prevent dysfunction in that corner of the market, which was causing a lot of turbulence for pension funds, then that risks looking like quantitative easing at a time when inflation in the UK is at almost 10 percent. And the Bank of England's main task right now is to bring that down by tightening monetary policy, things like raising interest rates. But coming out of the gilt market in this way with those very stark comments saying to pension funds, you have three days, you've got to get this done, also caused a lot of turmoil. We're seeing the 30-year gilt yield now over 5%. Uh, that is, is not just staggering in terms of the, the scale of the yield, which we haven't seen in years, but also because it's doubled in the past two months, saying these are moves that you do not often see in the very quiet corner of the market uh, that is bond yield. So they are clearly uh, still very spooked. But the message from the Bank of England is that they cannot continue to be the lender of the last of last resort for pension funds. They are asking today that lessons be learned from this, essentially that pension funds have to reduce the amount of leverage in their portfolios to avoid this happening again. The question, of course, is is three days enough for a market which just one day ago uh, the Bank of England described as posing a material threat to UK financial stability? So it's really time for pension funds to get their affairs in order. What do they need to do to ensure their resilience here, Claire? Yeah, so clearly they need to reduce the amount of leverage. I think part of the problem here was that, you know, pension funds have been borrowing to buy certain financial products in their portfolios. And when we saw the, the rise in interest rates and the fall uh, in, in uh, bond prices, that triggered margin calls on some of these uh, assets. And the banks had to sell, in many cases, uh, long-dated gilts in order to pay that. But there's a bigger issue here, Zane, and that is that 
it's not just uh, these these long dated gilts that are rising, yields are rising across uh, the market for government bonds, and that is partly a question of credibility in the UK government. Why would you lend money? to a government when you don't exactly know how they're going to pay for their tax cuts and you don't know how long they're going to be able to do what they're doing given the amount of political turmoil here. I think that is again part of the message from the Bank of England that they cannot fix credibility in the government by stepping into the gilt market. It will be up to the government to do that. And I think Liz Truss's comments today about not cutting public spending raises further questions. How will she pay for these tax cuts uh, if she's not going to cut public spending? Is she just going to ignore the ballooning deficit or will she have to roll back some of those tax cuts? These are some of the questions being asked today. Yeah, Liz Truss, certainly a major conundrum for her. Uh, Claire Sebastian, live for us there. Thank you so much. Right, the French government has ordered some striking gas refinery staff back to work as the country faces fuel shortages. Long lines at gasoline pumps have become common in France. Petrol workers are demanding a pay hike to cope with soaring uh, inflation. Joining us live now is CNN's Jim Biderman in Paris. Obviously, Jim, massive disruptions here. Um, just, just walk us through how hard is it for motorists in France uh, to get their gasoline? Well, in fact, you can see it behind me here. That one in three gasoline stations in France look something like this, which is to say they're either completely out of fuel or they've run out of some uh, varieties of fuel. Uh, and the lines here are just incredible. We've been here since early this morning. Uh, the line here goes all the way down to the corner. I don't know if you can see it down there, the, the, the corner and around the corner. Uh, people tell me they've been waiting in line for about two hours or so to, to uh, get their gasoline. Uh, and then, of course, one thing that does happen, something that's changed from this morning, is that they've run out of some gas. Here's the, uh, the lead-free gasoline out now. So you can imagine your disappointment if you're waiting in line for two hours for lead-free and you get to the gas station and they don't have any. All this is because the refinery, the refinery workers are on strike. Six of the seven refineries uh, in, the, in France are being affected by the strike. Uh, and the unions are basically saying they want to keep the pressure on the government. One refinery is still operating sort of normally, uh, and the government has ordered this requisitioning of employees as they can do for strategic industries in critical conditions. Uh, they're going to get challenged on that in court, but the, the, uh, they can order workers to go back to work under the penalty of a $10,000 fine uh, and six months in jail if they don't go back to work. This would be just key workers that they need to keep the refinery running. So they've ordered that, uh, and we'll see how that works, whether or not they'll be able to get some workers back to work. And like I said, the unions are challenging that in court, saying, and quite correctly so, that the right to strike is guaranteed in the French Constitution. See? Yeah, strikers demanding at least a 10%, at least a 10% pay increase, uh, especially given the cost of living crisis there in France, and also given the eye-watering profits of a lot of uh, energy companies there. Uh, Jim Bitterman, live for us there. Thank you so much. All right, still to come here, I speak to a Ukrainian MP as deadly Russian missiles continue to bombard the country. That's next. Russian missiles continue to rain down on parts of Ukraine with at least seven dead after Russian shelled a market in the eastern part of the country. The southern city of Zaporizhia and its suburbs were also hit overnight as well, as according to Ukrainian military in the region. No fatalities were reported there. 
This is the context as NATO ministers meet today in Brussels to discuss the latest battlefield development. Joining us live now is Kira Rodik, a member of the Ukrainian parliament. She joins us live. Kira, thank you so much for being with us. I understand that you recently just traveled to Berlin for a major political conference. Um, what message were you there to send and what sort of international assistance does Ukraine need at this point, especially as Putin continues to hammer civilian targets? Hello, thank you so much for having me. Well, our message remains clear. It's a frustration and pity that on the eight months of war, we are begging and asking our allies for the same thing that on the day one. Enough of the Air Force protection systems to protect our skies, to protect our cities from being shelled, and to protect our people from being killed. Because you can train with your guns, you can go and march to the front, but there is absolutely nothing that you can do with a huge piece of metal going from the sky to kill you and your family. And I think the world has seen this over the last couple of days. We were able to, um, to intercept at least half of the missiles. So the distraction would be even bigger than it is right now. And 30% uh, of Ukrainian energy infrastructure is destroyed right now. So we see the movement and President Biden promised to give us more of Air Force protection systems. And even there are movements from Germany that they will uh, finally give us uh, the system that we need. The key difference in between two days ago and today is that today we have 30% of our energy infrastructure less. And the rebuild of that will also lie on the shoulders of our allies. And the lives of our citizens cannot be returned. So the question that we still have is why, why, why not to give us the air force protection system that we need? We really need them for our survival just so there would be another day. And this was my message in Berlin. And this is our message throughout the world. If you want us to be effective in potential interception of a nuclear missile, give us the Air Force protection system because it will increase our chances of actually saving the world. So uh, we still are asking for fighter jets. It is critical for us to have fighter jets. We need them to protect all our territories. Ukraine mm -hmm. is a large country and we need lots of their systems uh, because uh, uh, so just to, to be able to say, OK, Zaporizhia nuclear right. station is safe. Right. Hey, right. Um, large cities are safe. And right now we already lost this time. And, and so, Kira, Kira, on Monday, after sort of the several uh, bombings of civilian targets across Ukraine, we saw bombings, obviously, in Kiev and Lviv and Dnipro and various other parts of Ukraine as well. President Biden issued a statement essentially saying that, look, in addition to the billions of dollars, in addition to the billions of dollars we've already given Ukraine, we are determined to stand with Ukraine and support this country for as long as it takes, i.e. there is no timeline here. We will support this country for as long as necessary. The U.S. basically saying that it really does have your back. Um, was that reassuring for you? Yes, it was indeed, uh, along with uh, the statement that we will receive more and more weapons. You see, we are not producing any weapons right now, and we really need them. Uh, and so the, all these kinds of support are important, political support, informational support, uh, but also the pragmatic support of uh, sending weapons to Ukraine. 
because uh, so it was incredibly important for our soldiers to know that we will always have United States as our allies, as somebody who who always has its shoulder for us to lean on uh, at the time of need. It is uh, it is important that we will be able to continue fighting. And for that, we need the weapons. And for that, we need and the financial support. And it will need Ki- to continue. And Kira, Kira, President Joe Biden spoke with um, one of our anchors here, Jake Tapper. And he basically said a couple of things. First of all, he said that um, he believes that overall, despite what he said in the past about nuclear Armageddon being more likely than it has ever been in 60 years, he believes that Putin is a rational actor. And he does not believe that at this point, Putin is close to using a tactical nuclear weapon. Do you agree with President Joe Biden's assessment? Is Putin a rational actor? And do you think it's highly unlikely that there will be a nuclear weapon used here? Um, I think that we cannot rely 100% on the statement that Putin is rational. And things are changing very quickly uh, in this war and in political situation in Russia uh, and with Ukraine's counteroffense and successes at the battlefield. So uh, personally, I do believe that Putin is capable of using tactical nuclear weapons. And what we learned in Ukraine is no matter what people believe, we have to be ready. So I can tell you at home, I have a backpack with everything needed for the uh, potential nuclear threat for myself and my family, because no matter what would happen, we need to be ready. This is uh, what we already learned hard way. How much has what hap- what's happened over the past sort of 48 hours, just in terms of, I mean, obviously, Putin has no problem destroying civilian targets, no problem, obviously, killing innocent people. How much is what has happened over the past 48 hours really strengthened the resolve of the Ukrainian people to defend and continue to defend their country? Honestly, it strengthened our resolve a lot. Uh, first of all, because we have seen a difference in ourselves, in our reactions between what uh, similar situation of shelling, intensive shelling of Ukraine happening at the first days of war and right now. We are much more organized, we are prepared, we are ready, and we know that his aim was to destroy our infrastructure to make it harder to survive through the winter, but also to break us. Well, I can tell you, we are heartbroken, but we are not broken at all. And we know that uh, whatever he does uh, is uh, still goes with his plan uh, that to, to, to kill us and to uh, deny our right to exist. And we are fighting for the right to exist. And we will be fighting only harder. We know that he would not stop unless we stop him. And we intend to stop him. Heartbroken, but not broken. Ukrainians have only gotten stronger uh, in these past eight months. Kira Radek, thank you so much for being with us. All right, we'll have much more news after the break. All right, welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks opening flat on this Wednesday. Let's take a look and see here, just down about 84 points or so in terms of the Dow. The U.S. producer price index rose almost half of 1% last month. That was faster than expected. The latest inflation data also raising concerns over more aggressive rate hikes uh, by the U.S. Federal Reserve. Bitcoin remains under pressure, floating at the 19,000 level. The cryptocurrency is off from last year's all-time high by about 70 But there is plenty of excitement in the crypto world around Sam Bankman's Free's 
FTS exchange. Growth under regulation are the buzzwords here as it enters the UAE market with a license to operate in Dubai as a virtual asset service provider, the first, by the way, of its kind. FTX has also partnered with Visa to offer debit cards in 40 countries, linking crypto to traditional payment providers. The billionaire, they call SBF, has pledged to give away virtually all of his entire fortune. In an interview with Julia Tatley, she started by asking him about crypto prices and whether we're over the worst after the market meltdown. I think that we've seen the worst unless there's sort of a general change in macro environment. You know, I, I think that we've seen everything that's likely to blow it around here. Um, but, you know, I, I think that like if we saw a giant, giant sell off in risk assets generally, you could imagine that reverberating around crypto. Um, you know, in terms of recession, to some extent, that's just a definition, right? Like to, by some people's definitions, we're already in a recession. And so, you know, I, I think that um, uh, that that it really ends up being sort of a, a question of exactly how you see the you know see the details here, what you want to say things even look like right now. Um, but uh, uh, but but yeah, and I think that like it's certainly if you saw you know greater uh, basically greater you know fiat currency strengthening uh, against risk assets that could trigger a sell off in, in digital assets as well. And you make a great point. For the least wealthy in the world, this is recession. And what they're going through now feels like recession. So that's a, yep. a vitally important point. Um, regulation, you mentioned it. Elephant in the room. Clarity would be a really good thing. I mean, you are probably the most powerful um, ambassador, let's call it that, lobbyist, actually, for the for the broader sector. And I know you're in D.C. more than once a month. You're really optimistic that we see some kind of clarity in regulation within the year. I've seen you quoted. I speak to others who are far less optimistic. What gives you that confidence? What's coming and, and why are you so sure it's coming so fast? Yeah, totally. And, you know, obviously I could be wrong here. I, I don't want to say that I'm, you know, 100 percent confident that, you know, my take is going to be right here. But basically, I think we're just seeing on many fronts at once a really big push from lawmakers, policymakers, um, regulators to get regulatory oversight and clarity in the industry. You're seeing this with some of the bills that are being proposed, you know, Bozeman Stabenow bill in the Senate Ag um, Committee. You're seeing this with a push for stablecoin legislation. You're mm -hmm. seeing this with the CFTC and the SEC, you know, working to uh, to oversee crypto companies. Um, you're seeing this with a lot of chatter from Fed, from Treasury and others about stablecoin oversight. I think there'll be a lot of people listening to this that have their fingers crossed and are hoping you are uh, absolutely right on that point. Well, we'll and, uh, see. There's catch up going on and and, it, and it's coming and, and clarity hopefully will be um will be the upside of this. Okay, I've got you in the chair now, so I have to ask about Twitter. And I'm sure there's things that you can tell me and that you can't <laughs> tell me, but um there is a rumor that you spoke to Elon Musk and that then there was a decision to pursue being at least some part of the financing. Um, you decided to let that rest. How does your vision, perhaps, of what Twitter should be today differ from Elon Musk's? What can so, you tell us? Yeah, yeah and it's a good question. And, you know, without commenting specifically on, you know, the, the goings on, um, you know, I, I think that, like, we don't know for sure what Elon's vision will end up being. And I don't think he knows for sure. I think he knows some pieces of this, right? He knows he wants to clean up a lot of what's going on there. He knows that he wants to create a more efficient structure. And he knows that he wants to create a more open and transparent structure in terms of, uh, you know, oversight and transparency around, um, you know, what you can tweet. Um, I think that, you know, when it comes to things like decentralized or blockchain Twitter, I think it's something that he's 
you know, brought up a few times something he's maybe potentially interested in. I don't think it's something that we've seen sort of like a whole lot of ultimate clarity on what he thinks. I'm not sure whether or not he sees that um, as something he has a, a definitive opinion on. Um, but I can say that, you know, from my perspective, like, you know, I would be really excited to see, a, you know, version of Twitter where, you know, there is a decentralized store, ultimately, of tweets that are going on, you know, where other platforms can interoperate with it, where you can have multiple social media networks that share the same messages that pass them back and forth. Um, and you can break down some of the monopolistic barriers there. So that's what I would be excited about for it. And, you know, always excited, you know, if it makes sense to, you know, play any role in helping that come about. So what you're saying is blockchain should be part of at least some of the running of the solution of how of how Twitter operates. I'm, I'm sort of reading between the lines. Just to be clear, if anything changes in the future, you're still open to being part, part yeah. of the purchases. I, I'm, I mean, you know, it all depends on the details, but super open to you know, being part of of working through this. And I think, um, you know, in some cases, that might mean being part of, uh, you know, the running of it, but that that's, you know, not something I want to give any sort of confident statements on, because no. really, in the end, this does depend on the details. I agree. But Elon, if you're watching, some still ready for a phone call, <laughs> perhaps <laughs> another phone call. Um, Visa, the deal with Visa, I have to ask about this too, because there's some irony there and perhaps the hope of the crypto sector making some of these big payment giants and superfluous. From Visa's perspective, I can understand if you can't beat them, join them. What does it mean for you guys? And is this about being an on-ramp for, for greater adoption of crypto and utility of crypto going forward? Yeah, that's absolutely a lot of what it is. And I think that, you know, we're really excited to work with traditional payments companies. Um, I think that that's sort of a really healthy way for them to approach this, you know, thinking about how they can, um, you know, help uh, build out some of this new financial structure. Now, a smashing success for NASA. It says it has changed the path of an asteroid after deliberately crashing into it. Oh my gosh. Oh, wow. Awaiting visual confirmation. Oh, Last month's DART mission was a test to see if an asteroid could be moved, just in case it was, you know, heading towards the Earth. Uh, it's the first time that humans have actually managed to move a celestial body. Now, this is a watershed moment for planetary defense and a watershed moment for humanity. CNN's space and defense correspondent Kristen Fisher has more. Well, Zane, what we've learned is that this mission has exceeded even NASA's expectations. We already knew that NASA's DART spacecraft had successfully hit uh, its target asteroid, Dimorphos, about two weeks ago. What we didn't know was if NASA had succeeded in achieving its primary objective, which was to actually move uh, that asteroid just a little bit off its current orbit. And so yesterday, NASA confirming for the first time that, yes, they had done it. They had proven that for the very first time, humanity had successfully moved a celestial object in the universe. First time that's ever happened. And so what NASA announced was that they were successfully able uh, to tighten Dimorphos' orbit around a larger asteroid called Didymos before 
the orbit was about 11 hours and 55 minutes. They were able to shorten it by 32 minutes, which is about three times more than what NASA was expecting. And so uh, the reason that this is significant is because they proved that this kind of kinetic impact technology, which is, you know, uh, fancy NASA speak for essentially just nudging an asteroid, they proved that this technology can actually work. Now, this asteroid posed no danger to Earth or humanity, um, but if there ever were an asteroid in the future that was on a collision course with Earth, NASA's first planetary defense mission has proven that this type of technology could potentially save it all, save us all, if, uh, and this is a big if saying, if NASA detects this asteroid early enough, they would have to detect an asteroid many, many, many years in advance uh, in order for this type of deflection uh, to actually work, Zane. All right, that is it for the show. I'll be back with One World in a couple of hours. Marketplace Asia is up next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.